I'll invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of uh, the scripture lesson today. Uh, our scripture today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. We are continuing today in our series on the book of Revelation uh, entitled Famous Last Words. And this last book of the Bible is famous uh, for many things, mostly for being really confusing. <laughs> but I don't know about you, I've actually, I've thoroughly enjoyed diving in and learning what this book is actually about, and how it's actually like really quite relevant for us today as the church. But just to recap a few things, so far we are learning that it's not primarily a prophetic book that is predicting the future. It's a pastoral book that is comforting the church in the present by revealing to them how history is unfolding from the perspective of heaven. In fact, the word revelation is the Greek word apocalypse, and that word simply means to uncover. So what's being uncovered in the book of Revelation is what's happening right now on the other side of the veil in heaven. We're also learning that it's not a book to be read literally, but, but symbolically. It's a book that uses signs and symbols and patterns, artistry, really, uh, to wake us up to the heavenly re realities even while we sojourn on earth. Therefore, we don't actually don't go to Revelation to get new information. You go there to get fresh imagination. Because the a fresh imagination is essential to a wholehearted life with Christ in a fallen world. We're also uh, finding out that Revelation is a letter. It's just like the epistles that Paul wrote earlier in the New Testament. Revelation is a pastoral letter written from the Apostle John, to seven churches in first century Asia, and then through them to the, all the churches in all times and in all places. And each of these seven churches are actually addressed directly in chapters two and three, and they really are the interpretive key for the whole book, I think. Everything that comes after in Revelation is hinted, is begun right here in these letters to the seven churches. So we've been walking through each of these letters, and today we come to the fifth church of the seven, which is the church in Sardis. Now, so far, if you've been with us, but if not, in recap, uh, we have seen that almost all of these churches, all seven, have at least one major problem that Jesus wants to address in his letter. And that actually gives me, maybe it gives you tremendous comfort, because that means actually from the very beginning, every church has problems. There is no such thing as a perfect church on earth. All of them have problems. And for instance, the church in Ephesus, their problem was that they had lost their first love for Christ and for his gospel. In Pergamum, their problem was that they were seeking satisfaction in the cultural idols rather than in Christ, the true bread of life. 
So today what we're going to see is that the major problem in the church of Sardis is what I would call false security. False security. They thought they were alive. They were in fact dead, spiritually speaking. They thought they were alive, but they were in fact dead. Which makes me think, what are other things in our world that appear to be alive but are actually dead? Well, of course, zombies, right? <laughs> Although they kind of look dead too, you know? <laughs> and also they're not real. Don't worry, kids, uh, it's not a real thing. There's also this famous movie from the late 90s where the main character thought he was alive the whole time and only to find out in the end he was dead. No spoiler alerts. My favorite, actually, is probably though a Christmas tree. I love this. We, we dress them up in lights and tinsel and ornaments so that they look festive and alive. But you know what? <laughs> it's just a dead tree. It's been cut off from the very roots that give them life. Brothers and sisters, what about churches? Can churches appear to be alive, even have a reputation for being vibrant, but in fact be dead? What about people? Can we deceive ourselves into thinking we are outwardly alive, but in fact we are spiritually dead inside? Now I know this, is, this, this, uh, this notion of, of false security can be a really difficult thing for us to hear. Because I'm fully aware that many of us probably in this room have struggled deeply with, the deep, uh, with, a, with an assurance of our salvation. Some of, you, some of you may ask the question, how do I know that I'm really saved? How do I know that I really belong to Christ? And so a passage about false security can make you really, really anxious. And so what I want to do is I'm going to remind you right here in the beginning what is the truth of the gospel which is that the assurance of your salvation is not rooted in your performance as a Christian, but it is in Christ's performance in his life, death, and resurrection. That is absolutely true throughout this entire sermon. In fact, Jesus promises in the Gospel of John, he says he knows his sheep. He calls them by name. They hear his voice, and they will follow him. Jesus says, I will give to them eternal life, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Friends, be encouraged. If you have placed your trust in Jesus' work on your behalf, you are eternally secure in Jesus. But perhaps there are others here who have based their assurance on something other than Christ. Maybe it is based on your recent spiritual performance. Maybe on how long it's been since you last did that sin. Or maybe it's based on the fact that you grew up in a Christian family, or that you attend church fairly regularly, or that you're always just around the Christian community. Maybe you base it on the fact that you voted the right way, or that you're passionate about the right social issues. Maybe it's based upon how everyone else sees you. As long as everyone else sees you as a good person or a good Christian, then you must be okay. Dear friends, maybe we have, maybe some of us have grown complacent, apathetic, no longer concerned with adorning your faith with the fruit of good works, no longer seeking the company of Christ, no longer checking in to make sure you actually have a spiritual pulse. So as has been said, the word of God is, both, is here both to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And so I actually pray that both happens today as we explore whether we, like this church in Sardis, are living out of a false security. 
Now, to understand what's happening in this letter to Sardis, you've got to understand the history of Sardis, which has been true for all these letters. And actually, my, my favorite part of this is explaining this history because it's, you wouldn't know it otherwise. Now, because the history of Sardis, militarily speaking, Sardis has a history of trusting and false security. And Jesus is actually using that history as a metaphor to help them understand what's happening in the church spiritually. So ancient Sardis sat up on top of a steep hill, and it was surrounded on almost all sides by perpendicular slopes, almost like a sheer cliff. There was actually only one access point to the city, which was this narrow strip of flatland on the south side of the city. And so what happened is the people of Sardis thought all they had to do to fortify their city was to just to fortify that little narrow entrance. Because if they did that, they would dwell completely secure. No attacking army could possibly scale the steep hills. The, the word that I saw used most in my studies this week to describe the reputation of the city of Sardis was impregnable. They thought themselves invincible, completely secure. And yet, not once, but twice, actually, in 546 B.C. and again in 218 B.C., an attacking army managed to sack Sardis. In 546, it's rather famous, the mighty Persian army under King Cyrus found a way in. You know what they did? They found a crack in the wall. And this group of skilled climbers found their way into the city. And when they found their way in the city, what they found is a city completely unguarded completely unprepared for a surprise night attack. And because no one was expecting it, the devastation was all the more severe. It was, a, it was a crushing blow for a very proud and unconquerable city. And then, friends, they were lured back into a false security until the same thing ha- happened again in 218 B.C. See, you need, you need to know that history because now you can imagine what, how it must have hit home with the church in Sardis to hear verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You hear it? Twice. The city had been attacked by armies that came like a thief at night when no one expecting it. And now Jesus is actually promising to do the same. Friends, I guarantee you, it captured their attention. And I think it should capture ours too. Because what Jesus is trying to say is that the same thing that happened to your city in history is now happening to you spiritually. You think you are secure, but you are in fact vulnerable. You think you are alive, but you are in fact dead. Notice the pattern of how it happens. First, you place your trust in a false security, in steep, impenetrable walls. Second, because of that false security, you grow complacent. Like, we only need to guard the little flat part. (laughs) The rest is fine. And then third, you are vulnerable to a surprise attack, and you only see the error of your ways when it is too late. So how does this translate to a spiritual false security? Well, it's the same pattern. You place your trust in a false security. This leads you to grow complacent, and then you only discover the error of your ways when it is too late. And you have to suffer the consequences. So what I want to do is I want to walk through these. I want to look at these individually to see if we are placing our hope, our trust in a false security. First of all, in this first step in the pattern, is that you do place your trust in a false security. And notice what it was for the church in Sardis. Jesus says they are placing their trust in the false security of their reputation. Look at verse 1, the end of it. 
Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Reputation means name. So it literally says, you have a name that you are alive. This means the church has made a name for themselves. They have a reputation for being a vibrant church. You would probably hear good things about this church. Maybe it's from their history as a church. Maybe like the city of Sardis, they have this proud history since their very beginning. I like to imagine maybe they have like a cornerstone that says founded in such and such year. Maybe they have paintings on the wall of all their distinguished pastors. They have a reputation of being alive, and everyone would have thought this church, this church has it going on. This church will be here forever. Maybe they had a good re- reputation even among the non-Christians in Sardis. Maybe even outsiders thought well of this church. But friends, what I want you to notice is that even if everyone else speaks well of the reputation of this church, did you notice who doesn't? Jesus. We have said, if you've been with us, that each letter to the seven churches follows the same pattern. There's an affirmation, there's a correction, and then there's a motivation. But this is the first letter we have come to where there is no affirmation. There's going to be another one at the end, the last church, the church in Laodicea, but this is the first one we have encountered. Jesus says, I know your works, and this is where the affirmation should come, but instead he goes right into the correction, which means Jesus has nothing nice to say about this church. Perhaps he's following the maxim, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Brothers and sisters, this is to remind us that there is a difference between the way man sees and the way God sees. He even says it directly in verse 2, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Meaning, your works may look complete in the sight of man, but they are incomplete in the sight of God. In the eyes of man, you look alive, but in the eyes of God, you are dead. There's a difference between the, the way man sees and the way God sees. Remember the story in 1 Samuel 16 when the prophet Samuel is sent to choose the new king of Israel? And he has been told by God that it's one of the sons of Jesse. And so he goes to Jesse's house, and Jesse brings all of his sons before Samuel. And as soon as Samuel lays eyes on the eldest son, Eliab, he thinks, ha, now this, this must be the Lord's anointed. This must be the king. He looks like a king. The Lord said to Samuel's heart, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Friends, the same is true for the church. What matters is not the outward appearance, but the heart. What matters is not our reputation in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of God. He says, do not put your trust Do not put trust in your name before others. That's a false security. I want you to notice what else is missing in Sardis. Not only is there no affirmation, but there is no persecution. Every church so far that that we've read about has been experiencing severe opposition and persecution. Whether it was from slanderous Jews or from the powerful Romans or from this pervasive pagan culture. And all these churches, there was tremendous pressure to compromise their faith. Some people were losing their jobs and even their livelihood because they refused to pay homage to the cultural idols. 
Some Christians were being thrown into prison because of their faith. Some Christians were being killed for their faith, like Antipas in Pergamum. But there is not one mention of persecution in this letter to Sardis. In Sardis, everyone thinks well of the church. They have a comparatively sheltered existence. And many commentators have pointed out that the lack of persecution can actually be a false security to lure you into thinking that everything's okay. One commentator said that Sardis was a church quietly drowning in its own inoffensiveness. Another said they were too innocuous to be worth persecuting. Another commentator said the church had peace all right, but it was the peace of a cemetery because they were dead. Brothers and sisters, beware a church that everyone thinks well of. Beware confusing a lack of opposition as a sign of faithfulness. Beware a faith that doesn't cost you anything. Now, of course, this has made me think about the church here in the West. And to ask, are we especially susceptible to a false security because we have a comparatively sheltered existence? Because the temptation of the sheltered is to take it easy, to coast on our laurels, to become apathetic and complacent. I don't, I don't know if you notice, even as we've gone through these letters to these churches and seen so much persecution, I've had to translate that into an American experience. Yes, culture is shifting and has shifted. And Christianity will be more and more the minority, and more and more we will be the object of ridicule and suffering, I think. And perhaps one day we might lose our jobs because of our Christian faith, or worse. But right now, if we're honest, the worst most of us have to face is feeling awkward. Or perhaps losing a friendship. When our brothers and sisters around the world are actually suffering and dying for their faith. And that's why I think the letter to the church in Sardis is especially for us. It's here to wake us up. It's calling you to be a Christian more than just in name only. It's asking you to look for the warning signs that you are placing your trust in a false security. Friends, are you coasting on the good name you created for yourself? Are you guided more by the fear of man than by the fear of God? Do you have all the outward forms of the Christian faith, the rituals, the practices, the traditions? You are dead inside. Could Jesus say to you, to me, to us, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me? You see, it begins by placing our trust in a false security. And secondly, it moves into growing complacent. Notice that Jesus says that their false security has led to complacency, which has manifested itself in incomplete works in the sight of God. Right? Just like Sardis thought it was complete to just guard that narrow entrance to the city, and therefore when the attackers scaled the walls, they found the defense of their city actually incomplete. So this church thought it was complete by doing whatever, it, whatever they did to get the good name they had in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of God, their works are incomplete. Some commentators think this is a way of saying that their discipleship as a whole has left a lot to be desired for. That it was half-hearted. 
a symptom of spiritual malaise. One commentator likened it to a spiritual lethargy. They've included not actively witnessing to their faith before the unbelieving culture. Like so many churches tend to do, they turn inward onto themselves. And there's another image. The second image of complacency in this passage is that of soiled garments. Did you hear that? Verse 4. Yet you, still, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, notice, first of all, how bad of shape this church is in. Whereas the previous churches had a few names who were faithless, but the majority were faithful, Sardis is the opposite. Only a few names who have not soiled their garments. The majority of the church is in trouble. Or as it was referenced earlier, the majority of the church is dead. Only a little remains alive, but it too will die if it does not strengthen, Jesus says. What does this mean? What does it mean to have soiled garments? I actually don't know for sure. But my favorite commentator says it's a way of commenting on their spiritual laziness as a whole. Like someone who can't be bothered to wash their clothes regularly. They've fallen into slack habits and therefore fallen into compromise. And being too much of the world. Now, I like that interpretation because it makes the most sense of how Jesus corrects them in verse 3. He says, remember then what you received and you heard. Keep it and repent. In other words, how do you restore a marriage that has fallen into complacency? Well, by remembering the past. You go back to the beginning. You remember your first date. You remember why you first fell in love. You return to the things you did at first. So how do you restore faith that has fallen into complacency? By remembering what you first received and first heard, the gospel, and all its truth and beauty and goodness, by doing the things you did at first when the love of Christ first prevailed upon your heart. It's by reawakening desire. Complacency, brothers and sisters, is simply a loss of, of an appetite for God. It leads you to get by on the bare minimums, to settle for half-hearted discipleship and witness. It reminds us that so much of the Christian faith originates in our desires of maintaining a hunger and a thirst for the things of God. I'm reminded of an entry in Flannery O'Connor's prayer journal that she kept when she was a student at the University of Iowa in her early 20s. She wrote this, God is feeding me, and what I am praying for is an appetite. God is feeding me, and what I am praying for is an appetite. The experience of complacency is being surrounded by the feast of God, and yet not having an appetite. And so we pray with her, God is feeding me, and what I am praying for is an appetite starts with trusting in a false security, which leads to growing complacent. And then thirdly, you see the error of your ways too late. By the time the surprise attackers came like a thief in the night, it was too late to do anything about their false security, about their complacency to not guard the whole city. So Jesus says in verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, friends, this is most likely not a reference to the second coming, but it is no less a threat of judgment. 
He is threatening to visit the church in Sardis, perhaps through some other circumstances, difficult circumstances as a judgment for their sins. And we've got to think, based upon their history, that the devastation will be great, even greater than before, because this time the attacker is not King Cyrus of Persia. It's King Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, you might be thinking, where in the world is grace in this? Is this the full message? You're dead. You're complacent. You better wake up before I show up and it's too late. Is that the, is that the story? I thought Christianity was a story of grace. Where is the grace in this? Well, brothers and sisters, the grace is as he is coming to them now through this letter. Before he's going to come to them as a judge, he is first coming to them now as their savior. He says there's time to act now. Wake up. What is nearly dead can actually be made alive again. And brothers and sisters, I love this. What I love about this passage, what I love about the Christian faith, is that everything you need to be fully alive is given to you as a gift in Christ. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. Good advice would be to leave this sermon and, and figure out, i got to go find a way to make myself alive right now. The good news is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Remember, the answer is not in finding some novel way forward, but in recalling the past. To remember what you received and you heard, the gospel that first came to you. And friends, throughout this entire passage, Jesus has been reminding them of that good news, of that beautiful gospel that they received at first. For instance, in verse 1, when he said that these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, what does that mean? Well, seven is the number of fullness. And so Jesus is saying that he bestows the fullness of the Spirit upon his church. He is coming to them in this letter with the fullness of the Spirit. Why in the world is that important? Because it is expressly the job of the Spirit to take you from death to life. Make you alive. Romans 8.10 says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. There's another one in verse 5 when Jesus says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. He was reminding you that only he can turn soiled garments into sparkling white clothes. Friends, it doesn't matter how dirty you've gotten them. It doesn't matter how much you've compromised. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because you don't have to go make new clothes for yourself. Jesus gives it to you. It's a gift of his grace. Galatians 3.27 says, for as, many of you, as, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In him you were clean. In him you are worthy. In the last clue in verse 5, my favorite Jesus invites them to trade out their false security for true security in him. Remember, they were trusting in their name, their reputation, their name before men, before others, in the book of men. But Jesus says, I have something so much better, something actually secure. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. 
I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Brothers and sisters, when you die here on earth, your name gets erased from the records. And people eventually will forget your name. When you die in Christ, your name remains in the book of life. It will never, ever, ever be erased. See what he's saying? This is, this is security. Not only will your name be remembered forever, but the King of Kings will know your name. And he will confess it before his Father, before all the heavenly host. Jesus is saying, do you want to find true security in this world? Do you want assurance that you'll be truly alive, both in this world and in the world to come? Then place every ounce of your trust in the name of Jesus. Confess his name. Acknowledge him before the world, and he will confess your name and acknowledge you before the God of the universe. Friends, this is, this is a gospel that is worth waking up for. It's worth living your whole life for. It's worth any sacrifice required of us in this life. St. Irenaeus, the early church father, around, around the year 200 AD, he wrote this. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And secondly, and to be alive consists in beholding God. Brothers and sisters, behold the glory of God today in the face of Jesus. Find in him the life that is truly life. Join the song of the church that we sang today. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Let me pray. Let me ask God to help us. But Father, you are feeding us. And what we are praying for is for an appetite. Lord, give us a, a distaste for anything that we are placing our, our security in that's false. Lord, and give us the hope. Lead us to the life that is truly life. In the name that is given to us by Christ. Written in the book of life that will never be erased. In the, in the clothes that have been given to us that have been washed clean of our stains. Lord, help us not to build our lives on a false security. Uh, wake us from our complacency, please. And lead us, Lord, to that which is truly life. Life in your name. Lord, even now, feed us at this table that we would find our satisfaction in you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.